0: Thank you very much, Father, and brethren, your grace, your blessing, and uh, Holy Fathers, thank you for having me here tonight. It's a great joy and a great blessing. Christ is in our midst. Tonight I'm going to talk to you about the priorities of all of us who are pilgrims on the path to paradise. doesn't work you can't hear me in the back okay all right so here we go tonight we're going to talk about the spiritual priorities of the spirit in our spiritual life as pilgrims on the path to heaven and the first question we all have to answer we're all orthodox christians we're baptized we're for the most part i'm assuming and we're in the church And we've received in, as a seed, the paradise that the Lord wants for us, the kingdom of heaven. But whether it is activated, whether it is real to us, that is going to depend on our struggle. And so the question we have to ask is, what are we seeking? What is sought by Christians and what is sought by the world? We said in our, uh, the title of our talk tonight is, Seek ye first the kingdom of God the spiritual priorities of pilgrims on the path to heaven. So the first thing is we are pilgrims here. We are temporary. This life is short and death is at the door for all of us, whether we live another 50 or 100 years. It is nothing before eternity. All of us are here as if in a twinkle of an eye and we're leaving. And if we have this understanding, this sense about this life, Immediately we understand that we are pilgrims on this path. And the question is, what do we seek from this life? Where is our heart? To what have we given our heart? These are questions we all have to ask and answer. Where is our heart? To what have we given our heart in this world? What do we love? Ask that question of yourself and answer it. And then compare it to what the Lord says in his gospel. We're going to talk about that. And his gospel tonight. Much of what I'm going to tell you is going to be familiar, and it's going to be from our Lord. Because my job here tonight is not to say what I think, it's not to say what uh, uh, insights that I've had or, or or anything of the sort. It is to give you the Lord's word and to help understand it in more simple terms for each one of us. So again, where is our heart? Where is our gaze fixed? On what are our eyes of our mind concentrated? What consolation do we want from this world? Where do we seek consolation? All of us seek consolation. There is not a human being that is born in this world that is not seeking consolation because this world is harsh. This life is difficult. It's a valley of tears and everyone is seeking consolation. Some more than others. Some have suffered more than others. But everything we do, including in a little while we're going to go eat and drink, and that is a consolation. Some of it is blessed, and if we use it correctly, it is the Lord's blessing and a gift to us. When we do not use it correctly, when we do not have those consolations as in the context of our life in Christ, then they become obstacles to true consolation. For the true consolation, the lasting, eternal consolation, we must turn to He who is eternity. We want eternal consolation. We turn to the one who is eternal, and that is our Lord Jesus Christ. Listen to the eternal incarnate truth, speak to our hearts, and learn from Him how to hierarchize, how to prioritize and regain our first love, our first love that we lost in paradise. Listen to the words of our Lord, and then we'll talk about it. He says, Take no thought for your life, what you shall eat, what you shall drink, nor yet for your body, what you put on. Is not the life more than meat, the body more than raiment? Behold the fowls of the air, for they sow not, neither do they reap, neither gather "...into barns, yet your heavenly Father feedeth them. Are you not much better than they? Which of you, by taking thought, can add one cubit unto his stature? And why take ye thought for raiment? Why take ye thought for raiment, clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They toil not, neither do they spin." And yet I say unto you that not even Solomon in all his glory was arrayed like one of these. Wherefore, if God so clothed the grass of the field, which is today, and tomorrow is cast into the oven, shall he not much more clothe you, O ye of little faith? Take therefore no thought. Three times he says, three times he says, take no thought, saying, what shall we eat? What shall we drink? Wherewith shall we be clothed? He takes the most simple things that we all need. How much more, and we'll talk about this, how much more all those things that we have in this world today that we fill our life with is great distractions from our true love. How much more of those things? He says, what we eat, who does not eat? What we drink, who does not drink? What we put on our clothing, who is walks to this world without clothing, every one of us. He takes the most basic things. But how many more things in our day and age have we filled with our life? He says, where would he be clothed? Why do you take thought for this? For all these things do the Gentiles seek. Who are the Gentiles? The idol worshippers. Do you think we don't have idol worshippers today? We have more idol worshippers today than in our Lord's day. The world is filled with idol worshiping. Just not the kind of idols that you see in the religions of the world. There are other kind of idols, but those exist too. For your heavenly Father knoweth that you have need of all these things. Why you take thought? And here is the key line. But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Here is the order of things. Listen carefully. If you don't understand this order, you'll never reach heaven. The order of things. First, the kingdom of heaven. All else comes after that. Do we have this priority in our life? How do we judge and what criteria do we have as we walk through this world? When we decide what to do with our day, when we decide when to get up in the morning, when we decide whether to go to church in the evening on Saturday or on Sunday or the feast days or the pre, pre, pre-sanctified liturgy. What is our criteria? What is our priority? And then we will reveal to ourselves. You see, we have to come to self-knowledge or this is all for naught. We can be a Christian and come to church. But if we have no self-knowledge of where we are in relation to what the Lord is calling us, we will walk in a haze through this world and we will have no benefit Let's prioritize things. Take therefore no thought, third time. Take no thought, he says, for the morrow, for tomorrow. For tomorrow shall take thought for the things of itself. It's enough, the evil that will come tomorrow. Think not of it. Sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. This is Matthew six twenty-five to 34. Again, I draw your attention to, Four times, five times, I'm sorry, not three, five times. Take no thought for your life. Take no thought for the raiment. Take no thought saying, what shall we eat? Again, he says at the end, take no thought for tomorrow. And why so much focus on the thought? Because this is the beginning and the end of our lives. If we, the, the in Greek, ig- 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 igomon nous, the ruling intellect or the spiritual intellect, the heart the eye of the soul, different words we have for this, this same reality, the, the, the center of our being. If it, is, if it is given over to thinking on created order, the created world, how can it commune with the uncreated? It begins here in cultivating thoughts that are, uh, are going to open up the kingdom to us. So the question then is, what are we seeking He says, seek the kingdom of heaven before all else. And we have to ask ourselves, what are we seeking? The presupposition here is that we're seeking. Are we seeking? What are we seeking? Many of us go through this life of materialism that we live in today, this world that is sunk into seeking the things of this world. And we go from desire to desire, from earthly need to earthly need, from sleep to sleep, To eat, to sleep, and this is the sum sum of our life. And so we don't seek anything except our own pleasure, and it's very temporary. In Acts, we read that they should seek the Lord, if happily they might feel after him and find him, though he be not far from every one of us. He is the presence of God. None of us tonight is outside the presence of God. We are all in the presence of God. What's the difference between those who are in the presence of God unto eternity and unto life eternal and unto paradise? And those who are in the presence of God and that presence burns, that presence does not bring life, but sadness, the grinding of the teeth that the Lord talks about. It is depending on us and how we turn to him and how we embrace him. This is the question. Our salvation is lost or gained depending on our decisions, our every decision. It's not just the big decision. I became Orthodox. I was brought up in an Orthodox family. Therefore, I am on the path of salvation. This is delusion. The question is every day, every thought, every, every moment of, the, of our life, we are at a crossroads. What will we do? What will we think? How will we approach our life and how will we use the time that has been given to us? Christ is in our midst. The question is, are we in His? Are we responding to His calling? It says elsewhere in the gospel, And I say unto you, ask and it should be given you, seek and ye shall find, knock and it should be opened to you. The presupposition again is that we are seeking. Knock and it should be opened. The door that we're knocking at is our own heart. The kingdom of heaven that His he is giving to us is within. He says elsewhere, "Either what woman having ten pieces of silver, if she lose one piece, does not light a candle, sweep the house, and seek diligently till she find it." And the point here is, for those earthly things, when we lose money, we seek, do we not, until we find it? But the kingdom of God, communion with Him. But even if we seek, we should never forget that He first sought us. He first came to us. And without that condescension, there is no salvation. You remember what it says at the Incarnation. The people sat in darkness and saw a great light. The Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which lost. The mercy of the Lord will pursue us all the days of our life. This is our Lord. He has sought us out first. And now we come and we respond to his great love for us. So what do we seek? Let's ask an answer with the gospel. A sign? A miracle? Magic? Many of us, unfortunately, because we have not entered into the mind of Christ, we understand the life in Christ in magical terms. We think that the priest is a magician. And if we commune often, suddenly we have the kingdom of God within us. It does not work that way. Brothers and sisters, we have to love the Lord with all our heart, soul and mind. And then his presence, which we're all in right now and every day of our life, becomes real to us. Remember the Pharisees. They come forth and began to question the Lord, seeking of him a sign from heaven, tempting him. And he says, no sign will be given to this generation. No sign. Because they have no eyes to see. The Jews seek after a sign, he says. The Greeks seek after wisdom. The question is, what do we seek? Do we seek a sign, meaning what Dostoevsky will later say, circuses, bread and circuses, earthly sustenance? The Lord says somewhere, ye seek me, he says, not because you saw the miracles, but because you did eat the loaves and were filled. Do we come to the Lord for our earthly satisfaction? There are not a few Christians who see the Lord as a means for this world's happiness. They go and run to the church when they have need. They go and run to the church when there's a a commemoration. They go and run to the church to have their articlesia, the bread and the wine. They offer it on the behalf of some earthly need. Is that good? Of course it is. But it is not enough. If we're only seeking the Lord for this earthly world, our salvation is in this world and we will not have eternal life with him. It has to be the hierarchy of things has to be correct. We seek those things and he will give it to us. He is our father. He loves us. But he doesn't. This is not why he came to make our life easier and better in this world. This is very foolish if this is why we run to our Lord. Why do we run and seek after the Lord for Physical comfort and ease, he says somewhere. Whosoever shall seek to save his life will lose it, and whoever will lose his life will preserve it. If we're seeking again for this life, to be, to have a good home, uh, security, economic, uh, the, our brother, our, our children in a good college, uh, and all the rest that this brief life gives us, if that's really what the church is for us, the means to attain those things, then we have yet to come to a knowledge of God. We have no continuing city, he says, but we seek one is to come. This stance is very important. We're going to talk about that in a second. Let me not get ahead of myself. The stance of it's an eschatological, the, 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 the theologians would call it an eschatological stance. We seek, we stand with our gaze to heaven, But the path which leads to heaven, this true life, is very narrow, self-denial. It's full of pain of heart, which is true love. We talk about love so much in the world today, we don't understand, most of us, what love is about. We have been, the propaganda and the, the media teaches us about love, and it really is nothing but love because there is no truth involved. You cannot separate truth and love. So true love is sacrifice. True love is pain of heart. And this true life that we seek, it's narrow. It means struggle. Without a struggle, though there is no one is crowned. And there's no refinement without a struggle. Right? There's no no purification without the struggle, without the ascesis. And tears, tears which purify us. The Lord says, strive to enter into the straight gate. For many, I say unto you, will enter to seek to enter, and they will not be able. How is it that one seeks to enter, but is not able? How is that possible? What does that tell us? That it's not enough to seek. It's also also necessary to understand the methodology and the, the way in which we enter the kingdom of God. We have to be initiated into the way of Christ, not just to have a good desire. Many of us think that salvation is a good desire or to be a good person. This is not salvation. We'll talk about what is salvation. He says elsewhere, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence and the violent taken by force. What is this violence? If we seek the kingdom of heaven and he tells us that we have to do violence To enter it, we want to know what that is, because we want to enter the kingdom of heaven. What is this violence? This violence is self-denial, it's asceticism, it is putting off the old man and his passions, and to enter into that kingdom, which is given to us, the grace of God, that cannot happen when we are walking the broad, easy path of comfort and of self-satisfaction. So we have to do violence to the passions. It's an internal uh, violence on our own desires. So for one to voluntarily tread this path, it means that they have obtained a good uneasiness. Let me express this. This is a very important phrase. We find it in Elder Baisius, St. Paisio the Athenite. And it encapsulates capsula- this, this sense of that we're missing eternal life, that we are missing the fullness and the abundant life to God seeks for us, and that means we need to go deeper. We need to abandon superficiality, vanity. We need to abandon that which does not heal the whole man. We want total healing in our mind, soul, heart, and body. Whatever obstructs that, we need to abandon it. And it's the good uneasiness, not being satisfied, not being at peace with this world, uh, this not being satisfied with this temporary and uh, the pleasures and consolations that the world gives us—that we're not when we go when we when we feed our face and we fill our stomach, this does not satisfy us. At the end of the day, we still seek something much deeper. Uh, that we seek true life, not among the spiritual dead and the corrupt. According to the Word of the Apostle, St. Paul says, If you be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above. Where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. And so this is the eschatological stance that we all have to have. Where are we looking? Where is Christ? He's at the right hand of the Father. That's where we're looking. We want to be with Him. The human nature, our human nature, sits at the right hand of God. And that's where we're looking in our whole life. And we have to ask ourselves, well, what is this, this heaven that we're gazing upon, that we want to enter in, this kingdom of heaven? So we, we talked about seeking, and now we're going to talk about what we're seeking, the kingdom of heaven. And what is the kingdom of heaven? We hear this all the time, but do we understand what it is? Is it a place? Is it uh, an external rule? In the Middle Ages, there were Protestants and others who thought that the kingdom of heaven was some kind of earthly paradise. There are many deluded, heretical Christians today who believe that Christ will come again on earth and rule. And this is a tragedy because this is what the Jews believed. And that's why they, one of the reasons why they crucified our Lord. Because they expected an earthly king, just like they do today. Just like they do today. The Jews are, are waiting for an earthly king, an earthly kingdom, to put their, their race at the top of the p- pyramid of humanity. This is delusion. The kingdom of God, brothers and sisters, is Christ himself. He comes and dwells in us. He brings himself within us. This communion is the kingdom of God. This is salvation. He himself is heaven. So when he dwells within us, and we dwell within him, it's two people. Both are necessary. Both need to love for this kingdom to be realized within us. Then we have the kingdom of heaven. We're already, we're already in heaven in this world. And if we're not in heaven in this world. We're not going to be in heaven in the next. It happens here or it doesn't happen. After the body. After the soul departs the body. There is no more repentance. St. John Damascus talks about and says in Hades. There is no more repentance. Why? Because repentance is a change of one's whole orientation, body and soul. The whole man repents. We enter in this world, when we have communion with Christ, into heaven. But this is impossible if we do not first change and say yes. The mother of God who said yes to the archangel, we all have to do the same. She is not the exception, she is our example She leads the way for humanity into the kingdom of heaven. And what did she say when the archangel came? Yes, let it be according to thy will. She submitted to God in everything. And every true Christian who lives the kingdom of God submits to the church, to Christ, in everything. Without this disposition of soul, there is no kingdom of heaven. So this is a prerequisite. That we are repenting. But what is repentance? How many of us understand what repentance is really all about? We have been affected, we have been infected by the Protestant understanding of a lot of the words we use in the church. Repentance in this culture does not mean what it means when our Lord uses it, it usually means remorse. I feel bad about something. If you ask most people, what does it mean to repent? What does it mean to have repentance or forgiveness? It means to not feel bad about something. It means not to hold a grudge. It means to uh, feel, to, to try to go back and do something better. Uh, none of that really expresses true repentance in the church. It says in the scriptures from the time that Jesus began to preach and to say, Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand, this is how he begins. And this is how we must begin our life. But it doesn't, it's not a beginning that that has any end. There's no, there's no end to repentance because there's no end to return to God. God is eternal. God is endless. So how can there be an end to our repentance? In fact, repentance is not a one-time decision. It's a change that never goes back. It never changes back again. We change our orientation. If you look at the Greek, the Greek is metania, metania, to change the, the noose and many people think and we in, in in english we say change of mind but that's not really correct it's not a change of mind in the sense of our rational intellect and what's our rational intellect it's it's, it's the it's the tool that gave god gave us to get through this world it's what we use to count it's what we use to to, to reason it's our logic N- that is not the organ of communion with god we commune with God in our nous, which is properly translated either as our, the eye of our soul or our heart, our spiritual heart, or even our spirit. In Scripture, St. Paul uses it and interchangeably with our spirit. So here you can see the whole man has to change, not just our rational intellect. Our whole stance has to change. Our whole way of being has to change if we're going to unite with he who is. The one who is. And we have examples of true repentance in the scripture. We have an example of false repentance or the lack of repentance in the scripture. We have Judas on the one hand and Peter on the other. Judas had remorse, not repentance. He felt very bad about what he did. And then he hung himself and never was in communion with God again. Remorse does not save Feeling bad about your sins does not save. Those who say, I can go to my icon corner and confess my sins are in great delusion. The question there is not feeling bad. The question is, how do you return to God and where? Because God became man incarnate and you have to go to him somewhere in this world or you do not have communion with him. We are flesh and soul. We are not just flesh. We have, or not just soul. We have both. And so we need to commune with him where? in the Eucharist. But how do we go to the Eucharist? By the path of repentance. And that reconciliation happens in the sacrament of confession. Later on, in the, toward the end of his mission in this world, the Lord turned to the disciples and said, the kingdom of God is given to you. How? By the remission of sins. You, It's up to you, the apostles, to remit or not to remit. This is the amazing, mind-boggling authority which God gave to men, but not just any men, deified, theanthropic men, who work under his guidance and under his noose. He He is the head of the church. And so Judas did not repent. Peter repented. He wept and he returned to Christ. He went back to communion with Christ that's when there's repentance. If you do if you do a sin that takes you out of communion with God, and there are many today which we do, which we do not realize that take us out of communion with God, the Spirit of God is very sensitive and He does not dwell where there is lies, delusions, corruptions. He wants to be in a pure vessel and He wants us to be united to Him. So, we have to go back to Him. We have to Repent and go back into communion. The Greek word for forgiveness shows us what repentance is really all about. It's synchhoracy. And synchhoracy in Greek means to be in the same place. To be in the communion, essentially. So if you are forgiven, you are in communion. If you have repented and it is, you've returned to Christ, you are in communion. We have the example of the prodigal son. When did the prodigal son repent? Prodigal son, as you know, left the father's house, went to a far country. He was spent all his inheritance, all his spiritual wealth, became impoverished because of sin. The devil, a man in the far country came to him and assisted him to work for him. What does it mean to work for the devil? To do sin, to go about doing the works of the passions. In the midst of this alienation, this exile, he comes to himself, he begins to repent, he comes to self-knowledge. But not, not yet is this communion, this is not repentance yet. He comes to himself and he realizes that I am far from my father's house, I am far from communion with God, I get up, I leave the pigsty of the sins behind, I make the path toward the father's house. When does this repentance end? When he embraces the father. When does that happen? In eternity. And even then it never ends because there's always more communion, deeper and fuller. So repentance is getting up, but not turning back. It's getting up and going to communion. It's a process and it never ends. So no one can say here, I have no need of confession. They are deluded if they think that they have no need of confession. Because that means they are sinless. And who is sinless? There is one who is sinless. We all need to go to confession, but not just to go to confession and say our sins, but to repent. That means to enter back into communion with God, to have a intimate, direct communion with the person of Christ. So it's communion of soul and body. What does our Lord say? Verily I say unto you, except to be born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. And he says elsewhere, when they believed in the Acts of the Apostles, when they believed Philip preaching the things concerning the kingdom of God, this is the basis of communion, lest we be deluded by the contemporary ecumenism and secularism and the and, uh, syncretism of our day. The basis of our communion with God is recognition of who He is. That means confession of Him as Christ. That means our faith, the Orthodox faith. When they believed, it says... The preaching of Philip concerning what? The kingdom of God, Christ, come in power. The name of Jesus Christ. They believed in him. Then they were baptized, both men and women. So this is the beginning of the kingdom of heaven. Baptism. But baptism is not something that exists in a vacuum or exists in isolation. It is incomprehensible outside the whole of the life of the church and especially the eucharist so one who is baptized it means of course that they are immediately initiated into the eucharist there's this delusion going around among our friendly ecumenists in the church tragically they think that baptism can exist apart from the eucharist meaning among the heterodox there are no baptized orthodox christians outside of the Eucharist. There is no baptized Christian. It is incomprehensible to talk about baptism apart from chrismation and the Eucharist. It exists so that one communes in the mysteries. It doesn't have any meaning outside of that Eucharistic context. Both and in the Orthodox Church. There's never one or the other. It's both and in our Orthodox theology. So it's all or nothing. There's not anyone in the church that is spiritually just a little bit pregnant. doesn't exist. You're either pregnant with the, with the Spirit of God and in communion with God, or you are not. And this is the reality of the presence of God. He's all in all. Do you know that when you commune, you do not commune of a part of the body of Christ? The servant of God partakes of the body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. There is no division in the body of Christ. It is all or nothing. He is not divided. He is undividedly divided, it says in, in St. Gregory of Palamas. What does that mean in Saint Gregory the Theologian? That He is distributed to each one of us without any division. It's a mystery, and this is the unity of the church. We receive the whole Christ, and we are baptized into the whole Christ, and there is no division in the body. So this mystery, this indwelling of Christ, of course, is internal. Not external. The Pharisees were looking for a worldly kingdom. It says in the scriptures, he was, when he was demanded of the Pharisees, when will the kingdom of God come, they asked. And he said, the kingdom of God cometh not with observation. It cometh not with observation. This is an internal reality, a spiritual reality. And he says elsewhere, neither say they lo here or lo there. For behold, the kingdom of God is within you. Just like at the end of time, the Lord will come back and they will say, here is Christ and there is Christ. Do not follow after them, he says. Do not follow after them. This is not how Christ will come. And this is not how Christ comes in our life. It is a mystery and it is revealed to those who are initiated. And it is a closed book for those who are not. What is the sign of the kingdom then? If this mystery is internal, how do we know? If we're going through all the motions, does that mean we're in the kingdom of God? If we're communing every weekend, are we in the kingdom of God? If we're doing all the right things, are we in the kingdom of God? Not necessarily. There is a sign of the kingdom of God, and it's the healing of our soul and body. The church does not exist as a club of the saved, of the special people in the world. It's a place of repentance. It's a hospital where people are getting well. If you're on the path of salvation in this church, you are getting well. The passions are leaving you step by step under the direction of a spiritual father. You're getting well spiritually. Are you getting well spiritually? Are you being healed? That's a sign of the kingdom of God. Jesus, it says, went about Galilee teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing all manner of sickness. This is a sign of the kingdom of God within us. When the sickness of sin of passions is done away. If we do all ma- manner of pious acts, we commune frequently. We even give our body to be burnt, it says, according to St. Paul. But we have not love, that is, the fruit of love, which is healing of sin and corruption. We run in vain. Many people misunderstand the ascetic life, they think the ascetic life is only for the monks. How many times did I hear in Greece as a priest, Father, why do you always talk about Banathos? Why do you always compare us with the monks? Why do you bring this in? We are not monks. As if there is two gospels, two paths, one for the monks and one for the lay people. There is not. There is only one gospel. There is only one path to salvation. There is only the acquisition of the kingdom of God and all the virtues, or not. Or we live under the passions and we are... Slave to our passions. And behind the passions, who are they? Who is behind the passions? The demons. The demons are the ones leading us to the passions and slavery to the passions. So the kingdom of God is present when we are healed. Ceticism is the presupposition for this healing. And what is asceticism? Our love for Christ. Asceticism is not only great acts of Ascetic self-denial in the manathos, in the caves, and in the deserts of the world. That is certainly a great and amazing example of asceticism. But asceticism is when you have a child and at two in the morning, she or he wakes you up and you have to go feed him. And you do it prayerfully. That's asceticism. Asceticism when you deny your desires for your brother's well-being. The poor person on the street or your own flesh and blood, there are a thousand and one ways to be ascetics. Because asceticism means love, true love for Christ, expressed in self-denial. There's no love without self-denial. Anybody who says, I love, and refuses to sacrifice, is a liar. They have not begun to love. The love that we hear about again so much today is not love. It's Desire. It's sexual pleasure many times. It's uh, toleration uh, of sin many times. is what they call love today. This is not true love. It's far from true love. So to whom belongs the kingdom? It is not just for those who are good. Right? Christ did not come to make us good. There was a law. There were the commandments and there was the moral law, which brought us to goodness. And what I mean by goodness here is moral a moral and societal order and uh, doing uh, the, the golden rule. He came for much more than this. He came to make us holy. And what does that mean? To unite us to himself, to purify us, to illumine us and to deify us far more than being good. He brought us up to heaven and put us at the right hand of the Father, far more than being good. True love, therefore, is the cross. And this is the point that the Lord said we have to pass through this cross, because this this purification, this asceticism, this self-denial is what's going to open the kingdom of God to you. In other words, my presence within you. And this is the, the end of the Incarnation. That we dwell with him and we become sanctified, we become purified, we become gods by grace. So, in order to truly love, we are violent toward our passions. We hate our passions. How many of us hate our passions? How many of us hate our slothfulness? How many of us hate our selfishness? How many of us hate our indifference? How many of us hate sin? If you do not hate sin, how can you love Christ? How can you love your brother and sister? You have to hate sin. Those two go together. We have, it says in the scriptures, be angry and sin not. So anger, which is normally a passion, when it is directed against sin, is not sin. It is the proper use of anger. If it's directed against your brother, it's sin. It's a missing of the mark. We'll talk about what sin is all about in a second. It says in Luke, The law and the prophets were until John, Since that time the kingdom is preached, and every man presseth into it. You want to enter the kingdom of God, you have to press into it. It is not going to come easy. You have to deny yourself. It says elsewhere, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What is this poverty of spirit? This is humility. This is Humble-mindedness. This is meekness. This this is a violence against pride. This is a voluntary putting off of the passions and not having uh, the uh, the wealth of this world, which is the passions, pride, arrogance, vainglory. Blessed are they which are persecuted for Christ for righteousness' sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. There are many many references in the scriptures to what the kingdom of heaven is all about. He gives us many examples, parables that I cannot say all tonight. Read the scriptures, find out what the kingdom of heaven is, because this is our point. This is the point of our life. This is why we're here to enter into this kingdom. It's not taken, and the kingdom of God is taken by force, it says in the scriptures. It's not taken by those who simply do good and keep the law. It's not taken by those who simply hear the word of God it's not taken simply by those who speak about the Lord, like I'm doing tonight. This is not the kingdom of heaven. It's not even by those who preach the kingdom of heaven. Those, there are those who have preached it and lost it. It's taken by those who keep his commandments. And what are his commandments? Life, life itself. The commandments are not something that is burdensome. It's not given because he wants us to be enslaved to him but to free us from the passions. Their life, his words are life. The kingdom of God is not in word, he says, but in power. The presence of God within us. This is the kingdom of heaven. He says elsewhere in Matthew, When anyone heareth the word of the kingdom and understandeth it not. So we hear the scriptures on Sunday morning and we leave unchanged. And we understand it not. Means we, It means we do not come under it. We do not submit to it. That's what understand not, right? Not just rationally getting it, but that we do not submit to the word of God. Then cometh the wicked one, he says, and catches the way that which was sown in his heart. So the gospel is being sown every Sunday, every day if you're reading the scriptures, it's being sown. The kingdom of God is being sown within your heart. But if you do not submit to it, and make it a way of life, you lose it. It's like baptism. It was given to you. The kingdom of God was given to you entirely. There's nothing missing in the mysteries. Christ himself is given to every one of us. Holy, I said before, there's no division in Christ. In the mysteries, he is entirely present. What happens? Why are we not all deified? We receive the mysteries, and there's nothing missing from the mysteries. Why are we not all deified? because we have not responded in kind with the love. We have not activated the Spirit by purification, by asceticism, by love. We did not submit to Christ in all our thoughts, words, and deeds. So he taketh away, and he loses the seed of the kingdom. It says elsewhere, I say unto you that except your righteousness exceedeth the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you in no way will enter the kingdom of heaven. So this, again, is not about being good, doing the law. If we're doing only that, the kingdom of heaven is far from us. We have to go much further. It is about loving the lover who first came down from heaven and gave himself for us. Not everyone who saith to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father, which is in heaven. The will of God. What is this? What is the will of God for us? Our salvation. That's the will of God for us. To be in communion with him. And how do we do that? By keeping his commandments. So everything the Lord did was for our benefit. He didn't do anything for any other reason. Everything he does and continues to do for us, everything he allows to happen to our life, his will and that which is allowed to happen to us is for our salvation. Do not doubt it. Many of us do. We say, why, Lord? Why did this happen? Why did this person die? Why did this thing happen? Why did this, why did I lose my house? Why, did, why, why? And therefore we understand, we don't understand who God is. We don't understand his providence. We don't understand that he is like a surgeon operating on us every day to bring us into full health. It's not about being just a good person and doing good works. It's about becoming holy, becoming united to Christ. And here we have to say this. We have to say this because there are many of us who have this idea that because we're in the church, however we came to it, we're saved. We're okay. It reminds me a little bit of the Protestant delusion. You've heard the evangelical Protestant who says, they say the words, they confess Christ, and now they're saved. It's all over. We're good to go. We have to be on guard for the chosen ones, the Jews, took for granted their inclusion, only to lose their status as the people of God. He spoke to the Pharisees and he said to this, and this is to all of us, everything in the Scripture is to each one of us. Do never think that there's everything said in the Scriptures does not apply to us. It all applies to every one of us. This is the mystery of the Gospel. It's never Old, it's always present for every one of us. He says, But what think ye? A certain man had two sons, and he came to the first and said, Son, go work today in my vineyard. And he answered and said, I will not. But afterward he repented, and he went. And the second came and said likewise, and he answered and said, I go, sir. And he went not. Which of the two did the will of his father? He says to the Jews. And they said unto him, The first, And Jesus said unto them, Verily I say unto you, the publicans and the harlots go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came unto you in the way of righteousness, and you believed him not. But the publicans and the harlots believed him. And ye, when you had yet seen it, repented not afterward that ye might believe him. Again, this applies to all of us. We are like the Jews in those days. We're born in the church, many of us. We were raised in the church, and yet we have taken it for granted. And others will enter the kingdom of God before us if we are not in constant repentance and return to God. He says, Many will come from the east and the west and shall sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the children of the kingdom... And that applies again to all of us. Do not think this is only for the Jews. If we are in this kingdom and we lose it because of our indifference, we are like the Jews. The kingdom, the children of the kingdom shall be cast out into darkness and there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. He's talking to the chosen ones, the chosen people who had all the prophets. It's like we have all the saints. 2,000 years of saints. Every day we can turn, open up the Synaxarion and read the lives of the saints. They're all there witnessing to us. And this witness is a great responsibility. It means that we cannot say to the Lord, I did not know. I did not hear. I did not understand. You did not reveal yourself to me. It was 2,000 years ago, Lord. No, he's present right now in the world every day. And he's speaking to us and he's revealing himself to us. Many today take for granted that they are among the chosen simply because they have received the gift of baptism or the Eucharist without conforming themselves to the image of Christ or attaining to the likeness of Christ. You know that in baptism you were restored to the image of God. That was a gift of God. And now it is up to you to go from that image to his likeness. That is salvation in a word. That's the patristic teaching. We are given his image, it's restored, it was distorted, it was, it was, it was uh, marred in the fall of Adam and Eve. Christ restores it in baptism, but it cannot, we cannot be brought up with the likeness of Christ. In other words, to have the virtues, the power, the spiritual presence of God within us without our willingness, without our cooperation, without our good uneasiness, without our repentance, without our love. It's impossible. So we are given this But now we have to realize it. We have to go from the image to likeness. And we think because we receive the mysteries that that will happen automatically. It does not. Again, the presuppositions of the mysteries. There are many. Before we are baptized, before we are ordained to the priesthood, there are presuppositions we have to fulfill if the grace of God is going to come to us. One of the biggest problems we have in North America for those converts that are coming to the church is that we are not initiating them into the mystery. We are not purifying them in catechism. We think catechism is to learn about Christ. Anyone can learn about Christ outside the church. Any Protestant, any Roman Catholic, anybody no matter where they are, can learn about Christ. What's different with the catechumen? He is being purified so that when he receives the grace of the mystery of baptism, he lives the kingdom of God. It's a real event. He feels it. He he experiences it. It's an experience. And he understands it empirically, the kingdom of God. It's not something he thinks about, wishes about. He lives the kingdom of God In baptism, if he's been prepared, the priest's duty is to prepare them through purification. That's why it was three years in the ancient church before they were baptized. They had to go through a process of purification from heretical ideas, from heretical ways of thinking and living, from immoral ways of thinking and living. All of that has to be put aside, and there has to be much potho in Greek, much desire for Christ that has to be there. And then when they meet Christ in baptism, they meet Christ, just like everyone we read about in the gospel. There's no difference. Christ is not a respecter of person. He does not choose people in his day and age to have a better and more intense experience of Christ. Everyone in every age since the coming of Christ has the same possibility to experience Christ in his fullness, the total coming of Christ. In fact, we can experience him after Pentecost more than anyone that saw him walk in the face of the earth. They could not partake of his body and blood. They were not recipients of his spirit. Everyone after Pentecost has a more intense experience of Christ than before Pentecost. The question is, how do we approach Christ? Many approached him. Many saw him. Many listened to him. Many turned away from him. Many walked away. The rich man, his own disciples, when he turned to him and said, eat my body and drink my blood, turned away from him. And this is the most amazing and beautiful part of the scripture for me when he says to Peter who he knows confess him and knows him he says Peter will you also leave freedom in Christ total 100% freedom he wants Peter to crucify his intellect and say where can i go lord you have the words of life this crucifixion of the intellect is the door into the kingdom this submission this humility opens up the grace of god to each one of us. And this is what we have to do to enter in. So it's not a given because we've been baptized, because we received the Holy Mysteries. There's nothing given at all. It's a constant renewal of a relationship going deeper and deeper. So as long as it, at this, these mysteries, this grace sits dormant because it's not been activated by our love, it's as if we never received baptism to begin with. It's there. But it's dormant. It's not active. This is the reason why we are here. This is the reason why this church exists. It's why this, this whole complex has been built. It's for one reason. For you to enter the kingdom of heaven. For you to enter the kingdom of heaven. And today we have amazing temptations which are trying to drag us away from the kingdom of heaven. And there are a thousand and one isms today delusions that are trying to keep, keep keep us out of the kingdom of heaven, whether they whether we call them by syncretism or ecumenism or secularism or philatism. We can talk about this in the question and answer. What are these various delusions and, and impurities which keep us from the kingdom of heaven? Uh, th- all of this has to be put aside, and we have to focus on the purpose of the world, of the church here in this world. So those who have remained uninitiated and inactive, they have essentially returned to the world. They live according to the fashion of this world. They live according to the mind of this world. And the, the mysteries are a closed book to them. They are, they are not known to the world, the mysteries, only to the initiated, to the experienced, the, the mysteries of the kingdom open. And he says... To them, he says, it is given to you, he says to the apostles, to know the mysteries of the kingdom. But to them it is not given. It is given to you because you have crucified your intellect. It is given to you because you have followed me and submitted to me. And this door, this mystery is open to you. But those who do not, it is a closed book. To the proud, to the arrogant, to the vainglorious. One has to become as a little child. It says, many, in many verses it says... Become as little children. Suffer the little children. Humble himself as this little child, if you want to enter the kingdom of heaven. Whosoever shall not receive the kingdom of God as a little child shall in no wise enter therein. You see, this this child has not yet invested his mind and heart into the things of this world, into the riches and the glories of this world. He's simple. He has not given his heart over to these things. He is still attached to his mother and father. He is still simple and loves. And this is what we all need to become. If we are attached to these things, if we've invested ourselves, we cannot be free. When we we spend our time and our life acquiring things, then we have erected a wall between ourselves and God. He says in the Gospels, I say unto you, a rich man shall hardly enter the kingdom of heaven. Who is not rich among us today? Kings would have been jealous for the ease and comfort we have today with technology. When you hear the gospel, when it talks about the foolish rich man, apply it to yourselves and to myself. I am rich. I have ease beyond the imagination of the ancients. Again, kings would have loved to have the ease which we have today, the travel, the food, all of technology. So we are in danger, brothers and sisters, when we attach ourselves to the things of this world. It says, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of the needle than for a rich man to enter in the kingdom of heaven. Why? Because he has erected a wall for that kingdom to enter in and be actualized. He is attached to things and not to the creator. We cannot serve two masters. We cannot have a split personality, be committed to God and to mammon We have to commit ourselves to God. The kingdom of God, Christ reigning within us, admits of no other ruler, no other master. He says, let the dead bury the dead, but go and preach the kingdom of God. He says, no man having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of heaven. He says, there is no man that had left house or parents or brethren or wife or children for the kingdom of God's sake that shall not enter therein." You see, you have to leave all this behind to be worthy of the kingdom. This this is a missing of the mark. Sin, for most of us, means something very, let's say, uh, extreme. But in fact, sin is everything that obstructs us to have communion with God. Sin is a missing of the mark. But what's the mark? Communion with God. Anything that obstructs our communion, the kingdom of heaven entering within us, is sin. It's a missing of the mark. We have strange ideas about sin. It's very simple. How can we attain to the image and likeness? Sin defaces the image. It is a departure from the likeness. It obstructs the coming of the kingdom within us. He says, know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Be not deceived, St. Paul says, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor the effeminate, homosexuals, homosexuality, nor abuses of themselves with mankind. He means sexual impurity and sin that is very common today. Thieves, covetousness, drunkards, revilers, extortioners shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Some will say today, Paul is very strict. Paul is very uh, uh, hard on us. No, he's not. He's trying to free us so that we might have the kingdom of God dwell within us. When we do submit, trust, and give our heart over to Him entirely, we love Him with our whole heart, mind, and soul, then His grace enters and transforms us. And then He says to us, and with this I almost am finished. I look forward to your questions and answers. He says, Unto what is the kingdom of God like? And wherewith it shall it shall shall I resemble it? It is like a grain of mustard seed. Which a man took and cast into his garden, and it grew and waxed like a great tree, and the fowls of the air lodged in the branches thereof. And he says again, what shall I like in the kingdom of God? Listen, pay attention, because this is what we want. We want the kingdom of God. And he's telling us, what shall I like in it? What is this? It is like leaven which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal to the whole was leavened. What is this kingdom of God? It is the grace of God. And he says, when the grace of God dwells within you, it changes and transforms the whole of the bread, all of the man. The whole man. The kingdom of God comes and transforms the whole man, or it does not come. It is not a partial coming. He comes with power and he transforms the whole man. Holiness, sanctification, illumination, transforms The whole man. Not just the intellect. Not just the moral actions. Salvation because you're a good person does not exist in the church. Salvation because you think the good things and say good things and think right things does not exist in the church. This is not salvation, brothers and sisters. This is not salvation. But the mind, the soul, the heart, the body, the impulses, the glances, the decisions, the desires, the whole man is transformed. When you meet a holy person, when you meet a man who's been deified, you don't stand in awe because he says smart things to you. You don't stand in awe because he is morally correct. You stand in awe because his whole being has been transformed. He looks, you, looks at you with eyes that pierce you. His presence is the presence of God. You stand in fear because you understand that God is real when you meet a holy person. The whole man The kingdom of God glorifies the whole man. Think about that. Have we become deified to that degree? Then the kingdom of God is still not within us. It's not yet there. We still have work to do. It says in Revelations, Then shall the righteous shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. This illumination, this Shining forth with the Holy Spirit, this is the end of the incarnation. This is the end of our life in the church. This is the point of our life. And this is what we have to be working toward. And he says, who hath ears to hear, let him hear. Come freely. Peter, what do you think? Eat my body, drink my blood. What do you think, Peter? What do you think? He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Are we ready to open up our ears and our mind to have the kingdom of God enter in? It's up to us. No one is pressured. Whoever so will follow after me, pick up his cross and follow after me. Whoever so desireth. There's no forcing. You have to want it. You have to seek it. You have to love the kingdom more than all the passing pleasures of this world. Thank you very much for listening to me. So thank you very much again for uh, your attention. And uh, this is an opportunity for you to ask anything you like, including things that are not on topic. But if those who have something that has some beginning with the lecture and wants to continue and clarify something, wants to go deeper in a particular point, has questions about something I said, uh, by all means, stand up uh, loudly and ask your question and then we can uh, we can try to help, uh, assist uh, you with a good answer always based on the fathers and the scriptures anyone anyone want to begin and if they don 't have a question or anything on a particular yes father on a non related topic yes father <clears throat> um, have to take
1: it. You have mentioned how we have to renounce ourselves, but the world is teaching us, the society, the atmosphere we live in, that we need to be sure of ourselves, mm. to be basically full of ourselves, and it's completely contradictory. A lot of people want to have confidence, power, and to be able to survive in this world. Mm. But if they renounce themselves, forget about themselves, how are they going to survive in this world? Mm.
0: So that, that cuts right to the uh, heart of what the Lord said in the gospel, right? He said... Um, hmm? Oh, I'm sorry, I don't know. I don't know how to turn it down. Sorry. Yes. Okay. Yes. Uh, so the question, you heard all the question. It's essentially, the question is uh, the world teaches us to stand up and be full of ourselves and, and assert ourselves. And the Lord says, first of all, seek the kingdom of God and everything else will be added to you. And so the world says that the hierarchy is... Uh, the ego first they don't have any room for the hierarchy of God they don't have any room for God the 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 world meaning those who are apostate or who are indifferent who who are rejecting God and so of course they're going to say we have to assert ourselves because there is nothing higher than man in in an apostate uh, uh, hierarchy right so the highest where do we begin with ourselves if we do that as Christians, we are, we are essentially declaring a different hierarchy. We're, 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 we're saying that we are a part of this world and we see things in a non-Christian way. We are rejecting that God is first. Uh, and as long as we do that, we will have the results that come from that stance, which are going to be a um, dog you know they use a, a, a very law, um, popular populist uh, uh, phrase: a dog-eat-dog dog world. Uh, you know, an animalistic, uh, th- the law of the jungle. And and if, if so, if we in pra- we say we, God is first, but we live according to our fir- we are first. If we do that, then we can be assured that we will enter into that way of thinking and way of living, and then. We will operate on those on that basis and we will be trapped within that that whole perspective. And it's a dead end. It's a dead end. Uh, So it's a challenge to all of us. But the basis of everything in the gospel is faith. It's trust. Uh, And what does that mean? We both talk about believe in God. What does that mean? It doesn't mean his existence because the demons tremble and believe, according to the apostle James, the demons tremble and believe in Christ. Meaning they recognize him. It's very clear in the gospel. On many occasions. They ask permission from Christ. To go into the pigs. They don't don't t- torture us before the hour. The demons say to Christ. So. Trust in God is much more. Than just recognizing him. It's entrusting our whole life to him. Believing in him in the sense that trusting and knowing because if you know christ you're going to know that he is in charge he is totally in charge of everything nothing happens without him allowing it to happen so the cure of this stance which is apostasy the, the stance you 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 told to me it's not so simple as believing in yourself right it's actually apostasy from christ in practice if it is as the world teaches us right if we are that sick with it and we put ourselves first and we we well we have to sell it we say lies because that's what everybody does in the world we have to say lies because that's what everybody does in the world right that, that's that's how this world works mm, no that's how the world works but we're not the world or are we that's the decision we have to make or we have to uh you know uh, be uh, like the world which is um cunning we have to be cunning in the world right to be to get around Well, if you're cunning, you'll have the spiritual fruits of a cunning, deceptive way of life. So no, we don't want to walk this way. What does it mean? It means a humbler life, a simpler life. It means cutting back on things perhaps that others have. It means uh, uh, putting the spiritual principles first and trusting that all else will follow. How many times in the lives of the saints do we read Uh, the saints being recipients of large amounts of money. And with one hand, they take it, and with one hand, they give it. And this is an an icon of trust in God. And then it keeps coming. And so there are many examples of how we might operate in this world. The question is, are we prepared to trust Christ and submit to Christ? So to go back again to the demons, the demons tremble and believe, what, what, how do, what, difference, what difference us from the demons? Is that we tremble, we believe, and we submit ourselves to Christ. We submit ourselves to his words. We trust his words. We submit ourselves to his commandments. When there is a decision to be made between the way of the world and the way of Christ, we go with the way of Christ. We deny uh, the, the broad path, and that will bring spiritual fruit. There's no other way for any of us to really realize that unless we do it. Come and see, taste and see, taste and see. This is the this is the methodology of the of the church. People say, "Well, how do I know?" You have to experience it. Well, how do I experience it? You have to uh, put aside your uh, doubts. You cannot. This idea that I will have assurances of his of his uh, faithfulness before I. Trust him is delusion. You'll never have it. You'll be you'll be searching for it, and it'll it'll never come to you. You have to you have to. If you know him, though, you will not you will not uh, uh, have that hesitation. If you know him, if you come to love him and know him, you will not have that hesitation. So, but that's how that's how we understand by experience, and and we cannot have it before we experience it. How do we experience his trust? How do we understand his, his, his majesty and his glory and his providence? We experience it. And so, like, again, going back to Peter, he, he says to Peter, Eat my flesh, drink my blood. Think about that a minute. Whoever said that? It's cannibalism if you're thinking in the worldly terms, right? And that's what they accused the ancient Christians of cannibalism. Because they had no understanding of the words of the Lord. He's the, the Lord's words were spirit and truth, he says. Doesn't mean any any does not make it any less real that it's spirit and truth. It makes it more real. But according to the world, it it, it is it is less than real. So he says to, to Peter, and he does not, he does not explain things. He does not say to the disciples who, who left, Wait a minute, come back, Come back. let me explain, it's not what you think. It's not really eating in the flesh and, and drinking my blood like the Protestants believe about the Eucharist, right? It's symbolism. He doesn't do that. He lets them go. Think about that, his disciples, many disciples left when he said that to them. He let them go. So the question, Father, for each one of us is, are we ready to crucify our intellect? Are we ready to trust? Are we ready to put aside And say with Peter, you have the words of life. Where am I going to go? I trust you that if I don't live according to the way of the world, you will provide for me. It's an issue of trust. It's an issue of faith. And the more we experience him, the more we trust him and experience his providence, the more we're going to entrust ourselves. And that's how it goes deeper and deeper and deeper. But we have to make the first step. We have to respond. And there's so many witnesses to say to us in the lives of the saints, in the providence of God, in the miracles of the church, there's so much that says to us, trust. (coughs) If we're not trusting it, there's something else wrong. It's that we like the way of the world. It makes sense to us because we're still rationalists. There's something that's obstructing us to this trust. It's a spiritual disease. We're not humbling ourselves. We're not prepared to put aside those things, we're not really interested in picking up our cross. So there's a spiritual problem there that needs to be worked on, to allow us to be free and to trust. The more you trust, the more you experience the problem with God, the more you trust, the more you experience the problem with God, that's how it goes. I can't, it's not gonna be explained to anyone unless they first put aside their logic, crucify their intellect with Peter, Except that I can't understand what he's talking about. He says eat my body drink my I can't understand that I don't need to understand that I don't need to understand. How am I going to live in the world without doing the things of the world? I just need to trust I Can't understand that. Why do I need to understand that I need to trust Christ? But we want we want to say I'm of Christ, but I live according to the world Doesn't work. We're not really of Christ we're still we're still of the world and it's a it's the way of christ that we have yet to enter into but christ is the truth the way and the life all three together you don't have all three together you're still not in christ it's very easy it's very easy well it's not so easy but it's 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 only one third of the whole package when we believe in the truth of christ that's very that's the basis right the faith the confession of the faith why, why are we having problems with this now? Is there something I'm doing wrong? Yeah The basis of our life is the confession of faith, but it's not yet that, that kind of faith is not yet the faith that Christ is talking about in the gospel that makes the miracles. It's not just the recognition it's the it's the trust right so so we have to make progress there. That's the key. That's the door that opens up everything and and when we're when we're still, When we're accepting the truth, but we're not walking according to the way, and we're not living the life, we still have—we're still on on our way to Christ. Has to be all three, Uh, and that again, that just happens by experience. You got to—you got to jump off. You got to jump off and trust. You know, you got to take the take the jump and begin. And uh, of course, that's going to happen after prayer and reflection. You need—you need to sit down. Stand up at your prayer corner and pray to God and ask him to increase our faith. Increase my faith. The apostle said the same. Increase my faith. You don't have faith. You don't have trust. Pray to God. He'll give you it. And then take the step. You got a hard decision to make. You're not going to take this job because if you take this job, you're not going to go to services anymore and you're going to be far from the church's life. But it means you're going to get $10,000 less per year. There's the decision, here's the time, here's the question of Peter, do you trust me? What do you think, Peter? You're in that position. Every one of us has those decisions to make. Again, the gospel is not just for somebody 2,000 years ago. It's as alive today as as ever. And every one of us are living in the gospel. The gospel is a diachronic, ever-present story of each one of our lives. We are in the gospel. We're Peter, we're hopefully not Judas, we're you know we're the apostles we're the we're the the ones who were healed were the ones it we're all in there at different times in our life we're in the gospel so again the question is going to be put to every one of us you know did you when you had that decision to make to go and become more at ease with the world become you know a, a bigger house a nicer car uh, a better university but that meant that i'm going to be further away from christ then the decision is yours. You're going to be like Peter, who said, "I I have no other choice but to follow you, Christ. You have the words of life." Or you're going to be like the apostles, who said, "This is a hard saying. This is a hard saying," I, and they departed and they left him. We're all in that bag, and every one of us has to make a decision. Anybody? Next question. Yes, sir. Yes.
1: Where do we stop and where is the line not to get into that uh, world, getting everything, and forgetting about the other side in a way of how Mm-hmm. With
0: the talents that we get. Mm-hmm. The talents. The and you you understand the talents as what exactly? The talents
1: from the gospels.
0: Yes, but what do you mean? Um, understand the talents to be? Yeah,
1: if I have to multiply them and make those things that you have. More
0: what do you think the talents are? The talents. This is the key to your question. You know the answer to your question. <laughs> the answer to your question is what are the talents they have nothing to do with material gain no, no, no. I'm yeah that. okay yeah what I'm trying to say where do we draw the line
1: and see how do we see this is the right thing I'm doing multiplying the whole thing. <laughs> making make and not I have to say, so that, a yes, say it
0: in serving I don't know
1: yeah Okay, Yeah, go ahead. I was not only talented, don't quite talented. a talent to make money.
0: Yes. Yes. So okay. the Lord says, we heard it today, take no thought. <clears throat> there's no there's no question in the gospel that the things of this world, drink, body, raiment and all the rest, which are much more today than anything could have been imagined <coughs> in the time of Christ, those things we take no thought for. We don't worry about them. We don't pursue them. We don't build them. We don't, we don't multiply them. They will come after we seek the kingdom. So the multiplication of those things is not in our best interest. It is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Very hard. Because he becomes attached to those things. What do you need to exist? What do you need to have a life? This is the problem that this definition has changed again and again and again in our society. So 50 years ago to have a Decent wage to have a the basics of this of this world to live in this world It was one definition uh, probably much much simpler because then the, the possibilities did not exist that exist today So we have to be very careful that we look to the world and we look around us a, as examples to imitate If we're doing that we're going to lose the criteria We're going to lose the criteria to judge what is really necessary What's truly necessary for us to live that's what the lord will give us if we seek more than that we are actually building up the wall to separate us from the grace of god whether we know it or not whether we accept it or not whether we like it or not the more we amass the less it's going to the harder it's going to be rather to let go of that and sacrifice that for the sake of the love of god we're going to put our heart there and if you tell me, that no, 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 I don't put my heart there. I'm sorry, but I don't believe you. The heart goes with the things that we amass. I have a lot of books. I'm sure a lot of the clergy have a lot of books. It's hard to get let those let those books go many times. My heart is in some of those books. I love some of those books. And when somebody comes and says, oh, I don't have that book, I struggle to say, take it. Take it. Why not? Yeah. Oh, well, where am I going to find that again? That was like fifty dollars. I found it in a book, a used book store somewhere. So the point is, it's when if that's the talents we're magnifying, that's not what the Lord wants. That's not the kind of thing He's looking for. We don't need to magnify that uh, to uh, multiply that. Okay, the talents we need to multiply are spiritual talents, spiritual life, grace of God. Uh, every one of us is born with. Gifts from God, for the sake of our salvation and of our neighbor. Our neighbor does not need uh, our, our greater wealth to be saved. Neither do we. Now, if you are wealthy like Job, and you have the virtue of Job, and you could and you're ready to let it all go, and you have that virtue, well, you are an exceptional person, and 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 you. God will work with you for the sake of the salvation of others. But it is very hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Very hard. And we're all rich. That's the thing. We don't, we don't realize the, the, the boundaries have changed from the gospel times to the day. We are all rich. And so we have many obstacles to the grace of God because we're attached to things. So I would say simplify your life. Elder Paisios he said it again and again and again to his pilgrims going to Mount Athos. He says, in Greek, I think the expression is um, f in a dis. So the, the ease and comforts are obstacles and difficulties. The more ease we have, the more comforts we amass, the, less, the more difficult we make our life. Simple, simple life is going to free us from the things of this world and make us, clo- draw us closer to God. We don't need to multiply those things. We need to lessen them. We need to multiply spiritual talents, <laughs> spiritual gifts, and make them fruit-bearing for us and for everyone else. And that's what the Lord will ask from us. He's not going to ask us, how much money did you make? How many houses did you have? How many cars did you do? How much did you-? He's not even going to ask us, how much money did you give you know, we have this idea about philanthropy that it is, it is measured by the amount of money you give. right? The check that you write uh, to some organization. This is not what the Lord has in mind. He says, the poor will always be with you. What does he want from us? A personal, one-to-one love of our neighbor. That's the philanthropy that we have to have. It's not about numbers. It's about the person in front of you. And it could be the poorest person, it could be the richest person, it doesn't matter. It's not about what they have or what you're giving. It's about your disposition to love. And so that's when somebody comes and says, give me $5 on the street. The question is not the 5 or the 10 or the 50 or the 100 The question is, what's in your heart? And do you give because you love? And do you see him as your brother? And do you give him as Christ in front of you? It says in the Yerondikon that you've seen your, you've seen your Christ. You've seen your brother, you've seen your Christ. You've seen your brother, you've seen your Christ. So this is the question. Do we see everyone in front of us as Christ, and are we giving to him and to her from a, a loving heart? Uh, Elder Paisos, St. Paisos, talks about the gift, the, the virtue of philotimo. Huh? How many people know what that is? Ever? Anybody? Who's reading the lives, the, the, the writings of St. Paisios? Yeah. St. Paisios's uh, writings are all... It's close to a noble spirit. Yeah, it's it's uh, it, that one of the words that that is close, but not really expressive of filotimo, is um, like uh, magnanimous, uh, being of a great and big heart. Uh, but another way to put it is to give and to outdo the other in goodness. So somebody comes to you and brings you uh, a gift, you give twofold back in some way or another. Okay, you don't you don't allow uh, an opportunity to pass you by to do goodness. You're always looking for a way to give and not get, to give and not seek anything in return. That spirit, that heart, is the philanthropy that the Lord wants from us. He doesn't care about the money, He doesn't care about the numbers. Uh, he wants us to have a giving and loving heart. Then we're making progress. Something I didn't say in the talk, but it's very helpful to a lot of people. I say at different places. And that is, the Orthodox Church is not about what we're doing. That's not what the Church is doing. We're not about doing, right? We're about becoming. Who are we becoming? That's the question. And, and now, if we become Christ, what we do will be glorified and will be salvific for everyone around us. If we're doing a lot of things, but we're not becoming free of the passions, Christ-like those, those many things we're doing are not gonna be selfish for us or for anyone else. So the, the, we have to put the, not the cart before the horse, but we need to put things in the right order of things. And the right order of things means that we're working on the inner man and, we're, and the purification of the heart so that when we do give, it's grace-filled and it transforms. So I guess the, 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 the basic answer is what we need Really, really, really need to live, which is not much. It's very simple. So we need a simple life, and we need to magnify, uh, multiply the spiritual gifts God has given us. You had a question. Um, you spoke about prioritizing God, and um you're the father of five
1: children, and another three, thank God. Um, it's really difficult, as you said, waking up, breastfeeding, two AM prayerfully. To be honest, I don't know if I do it prayerfully. <laughs> Um, so if you could just speak a bit more
0: about that, how how does your wife do it, or we do it? <laughs> yeah. we we all we all do it uh, uh, depending on a variety of factors, including our spiritual state. We all do it either prayerfully or begrudgingly, and this is the reality of things. So we're all we're all en view You know, we're all we're all on our way to that perfection. Um, but I think that. To be able to do that, we have to be praying beforehand. One of the reasons we fall into whatever whatever sin we fall, remember sin is whatever obstructs us to communion with God, okay so it could be a thought. The Lord does not talk about sin. remember in the scriptures he says, "You heard it said, uh, you know do not uh, return evil for evil, and then he's, he brings it to the spiritual plane, not even to have evil in your heart or you you 've heard it said, and then he talks about thoughts of lust in the heart. So sin is much more, in the, in Christ and in the New Testament, sin means anything that obstructs ourselves from the communion of God. So coming to the struggle, the ascetic struggle in the daily life of the mother, the father, the children, and all the rest, what is it that's going to keep us from any kind of fall or any kind of obstruction, murmuring, complaining, screaming, yelling, being angry, uh, giving a... a punishment with passion instead of dispassionately all these things that mother and father struggle with and fall many times what's missing what's missing is before we get to the point of the struggle before we get to the the crossroad we have to pray so if we're going to get up at two in the morning before we go to bed we need to pray and we need to pray particularly that when i get up at two in the morning lord give me the grace to be patient and that kind of constant turning to God in prayer is what changes the rest of our day and our life. And if we don't have that, we're going to fall again and again and again because we're proud. And why are we proud? Because we don't turn to God. That's what a proud person does. What does a proud person do? He goes about his life without any reference to God. The humble person is constantly turning to God and saying, I cannot without you. I cannot. So This is the key, long before we have the provocation, the the victory or the failure in that provocation has already been determined by our indifference or our prayerfulness, right? So why do we fall when we fall? Because we didn't work when we weren't in the midst of a provocation. So the the work on our soul and the prayer that's going on in a time not of warfare, but of peace. That's when the warrior is preparing for warfare, right? In time of peace. That's when he becomes a great soldier, not when the warfare is already happening and now he's going unprepared to the war. He's gonna be slaughtered. So if you don't wanna be slaughtered spiritually, you better work when there's no warfare. And that means on yourself, in your cell, in the morning, you're doing your Jesus prayer. You are getting up at four or five or six in the morning, you're spending an hour in the dark or before the candle, before the icon corner, you're saying the Jesus prayer. You're doing that. That's your power. That's where you're gonna get, you're, you're gonna be able to struggle the rest of the day. That's what will determine if your day is holy or not. That's where you're gonna be able to go back again and again and the grace of God's gonna come to you because it's gonna be right there. The presence of God is always with us. We're not with him. That's the problem. And why are we not with him? And why are we not with him? Because we don't turn to him in prayer. The kingdom of God is within us, but it's closed off. We need to open it up through prayer. That's the answer to every mother and father who's struggling, to every bishop or priest who's struggling with their parishioners, or whatever the struggle is. If we're not doing a good job of it, if we're falling, it's because we're not turning to God and we have a stance of Autonomous. We're autonomous, right? We don't. We, we're not really synergistic. We're not working with the grace of God, and so therefore we fall. And it's it's God's mercy that we fall, because if we didn't fall, we would think this is what salvation was. We would think we've arrived. That's the worst place to be. To think you're you're, you're you've arrived when you're really far from your target. Think about that. You'll never arrive if you think you've arrived when you haven't arrived. You're never going to arrive. This is the great disservice. Now we're getting a little off topic, but it's similar spiritual law. The great disservice of, our, uh, of certain hierarchs and theologians in our church today who are putting the heterodox at ease through theological dialogues, which are, are delusional, or through prayer with heretics, which are delusional. What are we doing there? We're putting them at ease. We're saying they're already with us when they're not. We're saying they've already arrived when they haven't. We're saying saying they're already part of the church when they're not. And what does that mean? We're closing off the path of salvation to them. We're closing off the path of salvation to them. In the name of witnessing to them. What delusion. What a tragedy. What a tragedy. We're doing the same thing on the spiritual plane when we are not do not have self-knowledge for ourselves. So this good uneasiness, which is the key to begin a spiritual life, it happens for everyone in the church. It has to happen, especially for those outside the church. If you have non-orthodox friends or non-orthodox relatives, and you have you have communicated to them that they don't need to become orthodox, or it doesn't matter if they become orthodox, or they're all Christians, and we're all Christians, and all those other kind of sentiments. You are closing off the path to salvation and to the entrance to the body of Christ. You're putting them at ease. And what you should be doing is, in a loving way, making them uneasy, a good uneasiness, which then arouses them to want what they don't have. Just like you should be roused to want what you don't have in the church. Right? You should, if you don't feel that you're missing the Spirit of God in the church, and everyone can feel that, from the bishop on down to the last person, everyone should feel I am not arrived. I'm still on the path. I need more and deeper and greater. The minute you feel self-satisfied, you're dead. You are dead spiritually if you feel self-satisfied. People, the disciples of Elder Joseph the Hesychus. Do you know who Elder Joseph the Hesychist is? Anybody not know who Elder Joseph the Hesychus is? Elder Joseph the Hesychus was a great ascetic on Mount Athos, who died in 1959, who was the spiritual father of other great ascetics, who've now populated most of Mount Athos. And the 19 monasteries we have in the United States are started, started by one of his disciples, Elder Ephraim. Elder Joseph, the great saint of the 20th century, he had a vision of the Mother of God. His disciples came to him and said, what do you attribute this vision? Why did she appear to you? How did this happen? They saw the grace of God radiating from their elder, they knew that this was an amazing event for him and they wanted to know, what was the key? How did this happen? We want want to know how this happens. And he said, I never for one minute, one second, leave off the remembrance of my sins and my unworthiness. In other words, he has self-knowledge. In other words, he's humble. In other words, he's in the truth. In other words, he's not deluded and he's a great saint. Every great saint understands this truth and they live it. And then they, then, then the, the mother of God appears to them. Then the grace of God comes to them. So when we are self-satisfied or when we put others who are in delusion into this state of self-satisfaction, we're all Christians. We're all in the church. It doesn't matter. We are in delusion and we're keeping them in delusion. This is not the state of an illumined heart. And lumen heart is full of humility and self-knowledge, and they're constantly going deeper in that. And so this is the key in the spiritual life. If we're gonna pray with that kind of heart, we're gonna have the grace of God, and then when the provocation comes, we're not gonna be moved. The passions aren't gonna be aroused. The devil's not gonna have any place in us to get us to fall and to, and to, and to lose our, our, our peace. Other questions? Yeah. I suppose it depends how we define sinfulness. I mean, one could define it differently. Uh, on the one hand, we're all sinners. Anybody not here not a sinner? Anybody not a sinner? We're all sinners, right? And But if you go out in the world and you ask people, are you a sinner? No, oh, I'm righteous. I'm a good person. Ah, How many people in the, in the Greek... I was in a Greek mountain village for 10 years, and I had men who would never come to the church <clears throat> and I would tell them you need to come to church You need to come to confession and they would say me I'm a good person I don't need confession <laughs> I said you need confession more than anybody because you don't even understand who you are so everybody's a sinner so that's the first step if you don't think you're a sinner you don't know you're a sinner you don't feel yourself a sinner then you're deluded you don't understand who you are um so that's a stance of understanding we need a savior. And that's a good thing. That's the beginning of a spiritual life. That's the beginning of, of, of drawing close to Christ. Sin, we said, was missing the mark of salvation, not having communion right, with Christ. And <clears throat> I guess sinfulness, we could say, is a state of not having communion with Christ. right? If you want to put it that way. Again, it's going to depend on how you want to define the term sinfulness. But I think as i understand it sinfulness being full of sin is a way of life that is according to sin in other words it's a way of life which is missing the mark it's it's a whole trajectory perspective orientation which is missing the mark and it probably means that the person does not know or have or is not oriented toward christ whereas sin per se people <clears throat> fall into who are struggling, who are in the path of salvation, but they fall out. They miss the mark in a particular time, place, or occasion, and then they get up again. So what do they do in the monastery all day? They fall down and get up. They're sinning. We're all sinning. The question is not if we fall. The question is, do we get up? Right? The question is, do we return? The question is, do we have self-knowledge? And do we understand who God is and that he loves us and wants us to return to him? And, and all of this is a part of this science of the spiritual life. And, you know, it's people who, um, many people in the church, they look at the, the the monastic life, the spiritual life, as one would look at some kind of specialty at the university, like a chemistry lab or something. And, they, and I, I, you know, I, I have no idea how computer computers work, for instance. I have no idea how they work. So people who know really how a computer works, I kind of stand in awe of them. I say, it's amazing. How do they know how this computer works? I have no clue. So that's how a lot of people stand in the spiritual life and they say, I have no idea how the spiritual life works. But the spiritual life is something common to every human being. And so it's not like I don't have to become a specialist in the computer. I mean, that's not something that's going to make or break my life but I need to become a specialist in the spiritual life because I have a spirit and I want it to be united to the spirit of God. And that's the point of my life in this world is to unite my spirit to his spirit and become one. That's why I exist. So it, for us to grow in knowledge experiential of what it means to be sinful, to what it means to sin, to what it means to be holy, all of that is is essential, but it's also something that you can't really understand until you experience it. That's the way the spiritual life is. You have to experience it to understand it. And theoretically, we have descriptions of it, but until we live it, it's still a closed book. So I don't know if I answered your question. hope I did. If I didn't, you can come up afterwards and ask me more particularly what I didn't. You have a question. Just very quick one, about it. regarding ecumenism Yes. the
1: uh, World Council of Churches and so on. When we see our, some of our hierarchs being involved in those sorts of organizations, what stance should we take as
0: members of the church? So the question was, when we see things like the World Council of Churches and ecumenism and we see hierarchs involved in that, what stance should we take as faithful? Well, first of all, we have to define some terms. Okay. So there's the ecumenical movement, which is a 20th century phenomenon, which is a movement of mainly Protestant Christians who are trying to unite for a variety of reasons and one of the big delusions people have in the orthodox churches they think that that the world council of churches began i have a little book on this if you're interested you can read my book on the origins of world council of churches and the origins of ecumenism. but a lot of people think they began as a search for truth not true they did not begin as a search for truth they began as a search for unity and mission protestants weren't interested in dogmatic unity they were interested in mission unity, practical unity, being together for the sake of mission, because they already believed that they were one. They weren't interested in the one holy Catholic and apostolic church. They weren't interested in seeing that manifested in the Eucharist. They don't even have that understanding. So they were never interested in what we're interested in as Orthodox Christians. When we, uh, the Orthodox Church, began to be a part of this ecumenical movement, we came in supposedly to witness to our understanding of these things. But if you actually examine the history of the ecumenical movement, we did a little of that. Few people did, like Father George Solorowski did and others. But for the most part, we became accustomed to living within that that context that I just described to you, that that Protestant context, right? And whether we like it or not, that's how things operate. So the ecumenical movement is this phenomenon, and there have been people involved in it who are not involved in heresy and do not preach heresy so we have to make a distinction however there's something called ecumenism and it's a dogmatic heresy it's a delusion it's a corruption of the teaching of what the church is all about and what is it in particular it's this idea that the church the body of christ christ himself is not one when we talk about the church in the Orthodox Church, we mean the body of Christ. We mean Christ. There is no one, if they're going to be an Orthodox Christian, who could ever teach that Christ is not one. They teach that. That the body of Christ, all the members of Christ, all the members of the, uh, of the body are not one. And that's a heresy. That's a delusion. And they teach it because they don't have an experience of the body. They don't have an experience of the unity of the Eucharist. And from their perspective, to be a Christian is not defined by participation in the Eucharist with the presuppositions of baptism and chrismation. So it's understandable why Protestants don't understand the body of Christ as one holy Catholic and apostolic. It's not understandable why some of our people don't understand the church as one holy Catholic and apostolic and confess it. So we have hierarchs, patriarchs, who say that the church was divided, who say that the, that both Catholicism and Orthodoxy are one church, who say a variety of delusions in a variety of ways but basically they contravene this confession of the oneness and the Catholicity of the church. So that's a heresy, that's a delusion. And that's a, something that cuts people off from the grace of God because it cuts people off from the church. I said earlier that when you blur the boundaries, or maybe I didn't, I, but I pointed to it. When you blur the boundaries of the church, you are essentially making sure that people who are outside of those boundaries never find the church. It's one of the worst things you can do. When we talk to non-Orthodox, we don't have to scream at them or we should love them with all our heart, soul, and mind, but we should never give the impression that the boundaries don't matter or that they're in, they're in within the boundaries. They don't confess the Orthodox faith and they're not a part of the communion in the Orthodox Church. They're outside the boundaries. That's the first step for them to come to self-knowledge. We talked about self-knowledge as the key to God-knowledge, right? You have to come to yourself before you can get up from the pigsty and go back to the Father. So if we want to help them, we've got to make sure that they understand and have that uneasiness that they're not within the body. So ecumenism is this heresy that says it doesn't matter. You're in, even though you're not in. Or the boundaries aren't here, or they're not there. Or there's two two different bodies, one church, even though they teach two different things about the faith. But that's not the Orthodox faith, which is a presupposition for the church. So there's a variety of delusions, which essentially uh, we can call ecumenism as a heresy. So coming back, what do we do as faithful people? What do we ever did as faithful people with heresy? Go back to the 4th century, the 5th century, the 7th century, the 10th century. Go back to all the various heresies throughout the history of the church. Who was the defender of Orthodoxy? Who spoke up and defended the faith? Not the hierarchs, for the most part. Fourth century, you go back to the fourth century, the great golden age of orthodoxy, most hierarchs were heretics. The vast majority of hierarchs were part of the Arian heresy. There were exceptions, and we have them saints, and we call them great hierarchs today. They were a minority, and they, their witness and their sacrifice and their love and the martyrs and all the confessors are what brought an end to heresy. So what do we do? We witness to the truth. What do we do? We speak up when it's an issue of faith. When it's an issue of faith, we, every one of us here, is co-responsible for the church. No one can say, oh, that was the bishops doing. I had nothing to do with that. Nope, not when it's the faith. You are a cell in the body of Christ. It's a disease that's attacking the body. Can you be indifferent? Not if you want to live. And not if you want the salvation of your brothers and sisters. Not if you love your brothers and sisters. You can't be indifferent. So what's the first thing you gotta do? Know the faith. If you don't know the faith, how are you gonna confess the faith? Most of us don't really know our faith. We don't really understand what it means to be a part of the one body. What it means to be... All these things we're talking about. So first thing is you gotta know the faith. Are you gonna start speaking up without knowing the faith? No. You're not responsible to speak up if you don't know the faith. If you become worthy, God will then have you speak up, right? You gotta become worthy of of confessing the faith. And and not everyone, and not every saint in every age spoke up. In the fourth century, there are many ascetics who we don't know about. We don't have any particular witness that they were witnessing like St. Athanasius was. They were still saints and they were still part of the church. Were they indifferent to heresy? Absolutely not. Were they called upon to confess the faith? Not necessarily. So it's not that everybody in the church is gonna be a St. Athanasius and therefore, if they not, they're not really, no. But in their time and place, in their family, in their parish, if they are faithful, if they're living the faith if, they're faith, if they understand the faith, there'll come a time. God will bring them to a point where they will have to confess. And that's not just a matter of loving the brethren or loving Christ. It's a matter of salvation. Because how can you be in communion with God, that's salvation, and be a to who he is? That's the faith that we confess, right? Those all, it's all connected. It's all connected. If you're living the faith intensely, you're going to confess the faith. You're going to understand the faith. So there's no formula for me to tell you, well, this is what the layperson does, X, Y, Z. It's called be faithful, go deeper, live the spiritual life. Time will come when you will confess the faith. Should you get up and leave the communion of the church because there's some heretics in, in some other city? Absolutely not. This is a delusion. The methodology of confronting heresy has never been a heretic teaches and preaches at a university or in a particular bishopric or in a particular church. Therefore, I have to leave the church. Where do they get this? This is the, this is the temptation on the right. There's a temptation on the right, which brings people out of the community of the church into, into various schismatic groups. And supposedly they're going to save the church from their schismatic situation. No, they're not. Uh, no, they're not. They're not going to do that. What, what's wrong with that stance? There's the, Before there is a synodical decision, the church in council speaks. I can say whatever I want right now. I'm not the church. When we're talking about the status of bishop so-and-so and bishop so-and-so, I can say a thousand things about that bishop. It doesn't matter. Until the church speaks in council, that bishop is going to be... Sick, deluded, he's still going to be on that bishopric seat until the church says you're not. That's how the church works. And if you look at the councils and you look at the canons, that's how the canons and the councils work. Their their whole purpose is to bring the issue before the church for the church to decide. What does it mean before the church? The whole body of the church speaks, right? Even if it's a council of bishops, the faithful have to say, yes, this was the faith. And they accept the council. So it's never just one part of the body that says this is the faith. So we have, a, we have a delusion. We have a heresy that's before us. How do we deal with it? It has to come to council. And it's going to come to council most likely on a local level first. So it comes to the Russian church. It comes to the Greek church. It comes to the Serbian church. And in the council of the faithful with the bishops at the head, they, ex- they examine the issue and they rule. And they say, this is the faith or this is not the faith. And that's how the church deals with it. And the bishop is this and the bishop is that. Now, you might say, well, there were false councils. Yes, there were. So there's no guarantee until the faithful say yes to the council. There's no guarantee that a council is going to solve the issue, but it can't be solved otherwise unless it goes to council, unless the bishops deal with it. So the whole struggle of those who have a knowledge of this question for the last 50 years is to bring the issue to a point where the faithful understand the monks, the priests, the bishops understand the nature of this disease, this delusion, this heresy, and then they deal with it in council. And that's the only way it' ever be solved. Now some of those people who've gone to the temptation on the right and are no longer a part of the community of the church, but they're fighting against heresy, they're convinced that there is no hope. The end, ends a time many of them I can't speak for all of them that you know, the last days are upon us, there's mass apostasy, and you know run for the hills but our saints and our fathers of the last hundred years who have spoken on the question of heresy and of humanism, they haven't taught this. I don't know. I don't know of any great saint who's taught this, uh, who's sought that we should leave before a synodical decision and flee to some kind of non-canonical state. I don't know of any saints. And there's been plenty of saints in the 20th century and they have not taught this. So stay where you are, go deeper, Confess the faith, teach people about this. It's a matter of life and death because heresy takes people away from God. Heresy obstructs the grace of God. The spirit of truth does not come to someone who teaches falsehood. Okay, Just like we said, the the one who's a catechumen, he needs to be purified of his heresies. Well, if you're baptized in a member of the church and even a bishop, but you teach heresy, you teach delusion, that spirit of truth who you needed to was coming to you in baptism as a catechumen and you need to be purified to receive that spirit of truth, he's not going to be with you after baptism if you're teaching heresy. So one of the other problems that people have that misunderstand how to deal with this methodologically is that they say, well, this bishop has fallen. He's teaching heresy. Yes, that's true. And the grace of God, the Father's teach, is not coming to that person. But until the church teaches and proclaims that that person has fallen, you can't, you're not the voice of the church. You cannot proclaim him to be fallen. So I believe, yes, in every one of our life, and the church teaches. the Father teaches, in all of our life, when we fall from the grace of God, for whatever sin, we lose, we lose the fruits of the grace of God. And that, that applies to even a bishop who teaches heresy. But until that synodical decision comes, he's still on that throne. He's still a part of the church. And it's very, uh, it's very, uh, equally dangerous for us to stand up and say, he's no longer there. Who are you? Who are you to say that? On what basis? And, and, and so I think that's how the church deals with this. It's a, it, it has to be dealt concilially, has to be done, dealt synodically. And that, that'll be, uh, all of us will contribute to that through our prayer, through our understanding, through our confession, through each parish being sensitive. One of the reasons why this heresy has gone on for 100 years, uh, like iconoclasm, iconoclasm had political power, and so does ecumenism, right? If you know anything about iconoclasm, it was around for about 100 years off and on because the emperors brought it back again and again. Well, ecumenism has a tremendous political power behind it. It's the spirit of the world, and the leaders of the world want ecumenism. It's it's in their best interest. So we have that similarity. But we also have something that, that... I don't think existed in iconoclasm it makes it even harder. And that is that the base of the church, the faithful of the church, do not understand their faith for the most part. We have a secularized base that did not exist as much. 20th century, we have a secularized base, right? A lot of faithful who don't understand their faith. So they're not sensitized. They're not confessing. They're not fighting against heresy. And, 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 the, and the patriarchs in 18, I think it was 48, confessed to the, said to the Pope, it's the faithful who keep the faith, who do not want anything to be changed in our church. In other words, they were pointing to the Pope that we don't, we don't have that polity of the, of, of a one bishop or even a collection of bishops who are the guarantee, guarantors of the faith. It's the faithful who have always kept the faith in the Orthodox Church. Today, that's under attack because of the spirit of secularism, and it makes it much harder to, for us to be cured of this disease of a Cubanism. Another question in the back. Say that again. Yes, we homeschool. So I homeschooled up until recently when we moved to Florence, Arizona, and I became the headmaster of a new Orthodox school, Three Hirex Academy. Now my kids are in the school. But up until last year uh, in in Greece for 10, more than 10 years, and then in America for two, we homeschooled our kids. So um, the reason, I'm, I don't know where to start, the reason why we did this is, bec- is for is a variety of reasons. Um, uh, but I'll give the most general ones, which apply to all of us. <clears throat> compulsory state education is a relatively new and recent reality. It goes back about 200 years. It started in uh, the Germanic states in the end of the 18th century, and, it, and, and the purpose of compulsory state education was not the enlightenment of the people, but it was the comf- confirmation the conforming of the populace to a particular agenda of a state it was state building it was about putting people into the workforce it was about creating a a, a machine for the state it was always about the state and and that is clear going into the, throughout the 18th century especially in the beginning of the 20th century when the totalitarian regimes came to power what you saw was an increase in the mandatory and and required number of years in school, twofold or threefold. So from six or four years, you went to 12 years in most places. And what people have to understand is it's not about educating your children for the most part. That happens in spite of the system because of good teachers. But the system is not about educating your children. It's about putting your children into a mindset, into a system which is serving other purposes True education, true, more, true um, formation is, is happening, uh, first and foremost, in the first five or six or eight years of the child's life. That's when real formation happens. That's when most of what the instincts and the outlook of the children is going to have for the rest of their life. That's where it's formed. And that's why when you go back to the ancient church, St. Basil the Great and other saints, they didn't leave the home until they were 8, 9, 10, 12 years old. There was no early education for most of humanity, and certainly for most of the saints. Read the lives of the saints, none of them are leaving at age five from their house, from their home. If anybody's being educated, they're bringing a tutor in, and it's starting at age eight or nine. So what is that, is that an accident? They couldn't get people to educate them? No, because they understood that that education was gonna happen with their mother and their father in the home for the first six, seven, eight, nine, 10 years. And then later on, certain people were educated. So homeschooling is the norm throughout history. Compulsory education is the exception. And it's, it's, it's historically is not about the formation, certainly not the spiritual formation, it's about the spiritual deformation of modern society, taking people away from their parents at a young age and putting them in a system which is godless, that's what most of compulsory education in the 20th century was about. And it still is. The other thing is compulsory state education, especially in the Western world, especially in America, post John Dewey, end of the 18th century, 19th century, is egocentric. The pedagogy is not Christ-like. It's not Christ-centric. It's not a, there's not a prototype in which we're all being formed according to that prototype. Okay, it's not that we're going to become like Christ. That doesn't happen in modern, modern education. That's not the goal. The goal is very different and it's egocentric. And so spiritually, it undermines the spiritual life for most people. In spite of our education, we're, we're Orthodox Christians today. So homeschooling is, a, is, for me, a necessity for my children to remain Orthodox, to be spiritually healthy, and to, and to be free uh, in, in most modern societies. Even in Greece, I decided to homeschool because I knew the benefit for my children to be close to me and to be under my pedagogy for their souls and their spiritual development would be beneficial. Besides the fact that contemporary Greek education is going the way of the world and of Europe very quickly, introducing in grades two or three sex education, American education is so far gone. Uh, they're teaching promiscuity and fornication to young children in the schools in many places in public education. Transgender and all the other deformities of humanity, the loss of identity of human beings is being indoctrinated in the schools and so the question is not indoctrination or not it's what indoctrination we indoctrinate it's called the doctrine of christ it's freedom that's what we teach that's what we should be doing that's what our schools should be about it's not going to be that oh i have indoctrination in the orthodox context and i have education in the public context that's delusional there's a doctrine there. There's a philosophy of life. There's a pedagogy that's being imparted in the public systems and it's godless. And so home, homeschooling for me was a necessity for my children and my family to become in cult, in cult, um, cultivated and and formed in the orthodox outlook, the orthodox way of life. Um, increasingly in America, especially I can't speak for Australia, It's massive. All 50 states have passed laws decades ago allowing it. We have 2.5 million students in America who do homeschooling. There's homeschooling co-ops. There's homeschooling schools. What does that mean? There's three days a week you're homeschooling, two days a week you're in school. And you have teachers that assist you. And there's all kinds of options in America to do homeschooling, to do it in a particular way that you want to do it. You can do it online, you can do it at home, you can do it in a co-op, you can do it part-time at the school. Uh, homeschooling in America has come way far, very far in the last 30, 40 years to be a part of the educational option for most people. And so for us, it was it was never a question of, you know, departing from the mainstream, even in America anymore, and most of those, a lot of those kids are very well educated. I'll just give you an example. One child um, who was homeschooled, uh, he he didn't prepare for the the, the national uh, scholastic test, the SAT, uh, but he did very well on it. He got a 720 out of 800. And what did he? What was his education? His education was mainly five years of Latin, five years of ancient Greek, and and other humanities and, and basic science. And he did very well. He didn't. And here's one of the myths that goes around. You've got to get into the system and prepare and learn in order to give a test. It's one of the delusions of contemporary education. And this is very much true in public education in America. They're interested in test scores. So they, they are educated for the test. That's not education. That's not formation. That's not creating critical thinkers. That's creating people who take good tests and people who take good tests are people who regurgitate information. They lose discernment. The same thing is happening when somebody sits in front of a television all day, they lose discernment of what they're seeing. It's a, it's methodologically not training them to be critical thinkers that I don't believe. That in modern education, there's a lot of critical thinking going on, um, and it shows in, in in the fruit. So, so the, the homeschooling is an option. I don't know what in Australia is it is it legal to homeschool? Yeah, are, are there people do in the orthodox context who are homeschooling? Okay, so uh, in, in, online in English in America, you can find hundreds of curriculums. So if you want to do a classical education like we did, lots of material. You want to do you know, a particular kind of educational approach, um, they're all there. It's not, it's not hard. There's a lot of material available for parents uh, who, to homeschool. And the, the key years for homeschool are, are going to be the first five, first seven. Uh, that's where the, the work's going to be done. And most parents who are educated in the Western world can do that. It's not beyond them. It's not that hard for them to do that material. they got to work at it. they got to prepare it, but it's not beyond their intellectual ability, even if they're not highly educated. When they get into 7th, 8th, ninth, 10th grade, then it becomes difficult, and th- but there's a lot of material online that can assist somebody if they want to do homeschooling. I don't know if I answered your question. It was a pretty open-ended question, so uh, I could go on, uh, and uh, I'm happy to do that. But any other questions? Somebody? Yes, ma'am. Yes, 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 so the calendar change, yeah, so how many how many people know what the calendar change was or, or how many people don't how many people don't know anything about the calendars most people okay. Two words about the calendar change, then I'll tell you what I think about it. Um, the calendar change was was in the context of a of a shift of the from the Ecumenical Patriarchate, mainly f- uh, from the early the late eighteen ni- hundreds to early nineteen twenties. There was a shift in its perspective and its understanding, and that happened um, even before nineteen twenty. Nineteen twenty was the famous encyclical. That was written from Ecumenical Patriarchate to the so-called to the all the churches, uh, the churches of Christ everywhere, and and that encyclical established a different perspective in terms of ecclesiology. It, it, it proposed a, a, an ecclesiology which was not the Orthodox ecclesiology. It talked about heterodox churches being a part of the one church. Okay, so essentially a Protestant ecclesiology was present in that encyclical in 1920. But even before 1920. There were agreements being made with Protestant missionaries in Asia Minor, saying that we're not going to missionize you, and you don't missionize us. So already before that decision, and then if you go back to nineteen ten, there was uh, there was a meeting of a Protestant uh, like international youth group that was held in Constantinople, and the Orthodox people participated from the Ecumenical Patriarchate. So you can see there was a process in the in the first ten twenty years of increasing contacts and increasing dilution of the Orthodox Ecrivia exactitude in terms of our ecclesiology. So you need to understand the calendar change in context. It was not made simply because there were all these changes going on in the, in the calendars in terms of the States, because that was going on the state of Greece church state of Greece was changing its calendar to conform to the Western calendar and all the rest. So there was pressure from political ends. But it was in this context of ecumenism and a desire to gain in the West, to be closer to the West, to be closer to the Catholicism and Protestantism, that the change in the calendar happened. Uh, So it was the main sin. We could go on for different things about the calendar. But the main sin was against conciliarity. The main sin was against the Orthodox ecclesiology. That decision, which brought in division of the local churches, was made without the consent of all the local churches. It was a decision that should have been made by the entire church. And this is the same problem we have today with Ukraine. You have the Ecumenical Patriarchate making a decision without the cons- the uh, consent and the agreement of all the local churches, again bringing division in the church. So methodologically the calendar change was an error. Whether it was the calendar change or some other change, the way they go about, they were going about it was a sin against orthodox conciliarity synodicotita, uh, or uh, or, uh, or ecclesiology, and that was the main problem now the change scientifically and all the rest you could also make a case that it was also problematic and there were there were decisions made by the ecumenical patriarchate itself 200 300 years before that which um, did, did not want to follow the West in its in its change in the calendar. But the main problem was con- was the conciliar change, the, the, the lack of conciliarity. Now, the change was made, it was made only by a few local churches. It was made initially by the Church of Russia, but then they went back. They repented of that because they saw the division was coming to the credit of St. Tikhon. Uh, I love St. Tikhon's approach to this. It's exactly what should have happened to all the local churches if you ever... Um, want to know. You can find it online how he understood the change and why they went back to the old calendar. But um, I think at the same time saying that that this was a sin against the church and against the conciliarity of the church, the response over the next two decades in Greece by groups that then became the old calendar's jurisdiction was also mistaken. Methodologically, how they responded to that change was not in the patristic methodology. So it was a trap. I call it a trap that they fell into. Because the aim of the devil is not to change a calendar. That's not what he cares about. The aim of the devil is to divide the church, always. That's what he's trying to do right now in Ukraine. That's why it's very important that the local churches never accept this decision by the Ecumenical Patriarchate in Ukraine. Because it will bring... It will bring um, division in the church, very long-lasting. So we're right now at a very crucial period, just like in the 1924 with the calendar change, we're at a very crucial period, depending on what the local churches do in reaction to this new innovation, which is really an ecclesiological error, again, on the part of the ecumenical Patriarchate. It's very important what the local churches do. They have to resist going along with this, it will create another new division. It will be another demonic victory. So the response should have been that we that we 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 circle the horses, we we double down, and we resist without creating a division. Because that was the aim. The aim was to to get rid of this 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 unity of the Orthodox, create a division, and weaken the church. And then later on he comes with the devil comes with even more provocative, uh, heretical actions with Athenagoras and the, the lifting of the anathemas, and more division, more division is brought. And so I, I think that it's it's both in. I think there was an innovation, it was a sin against conservatory, but the reaction should have been not further division, because we had division in terms of the calendar, and now we have division <coughs> and they're, they're, they're um, and of course, the old calendars, ecclesiology per se, was to declare the mysteries of the new calendars as, as, as null and void, at least some of the old calendars. Again, not a patristic response. Until there was a conciliar decision, there should not have been pronouncements on grace. Until, until there, there was a conciliar decision, there should not have been a decision to uh, depart. The, 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 the saints didn't do that. The saints did not fight heresy by dividing the church or by leaving the communion of the church. That's not my experience of the saints. Now, you can cease commemoration of a heretical bishop, but the canon does not justify you to cease communion of everyone who's in communion with a heretical bishop. There's nowhere that that's justified. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. No. Again, the calendar per se, the change is not heresy. It's not heresy. It's a canonical error. It's a spiritual error. It's a sin against conciliarity. It's not heresy. Of course. What does the the devil care about 13 days? What does he care about 13 days? He wants to divide us. He divides and then he conquers. That's what he does again and again. That's what he's doing right now in Ukraine. Right? And the saints on Athos are on the old calendar. They're sticking to the old calendar because they don't want to innovate. And the new calendar is an innovation in the sense that it's not done conciliarly. If the church had all come together and decided on the new calendar as a church, there would be no problem today. And and, and of course, not adopting what the paper said, but adopting an orthodox decision on this in a conciliar way, there would be no problem. So the calendar per se is not the problem, the division is the problem.